0: I want to ask us a question, and this is going to be the question that kind of like is over the entire thing we talk about today. And that question is, in what form does God's judgment come? In what form does God's judgment come? Tens of thousands of Christian churches throughout the West teach that if you don't turn to Jesus, you will burn in God's everlasting judgment. Most of the time that has to do with fire. Sermons are built to steal, kill, and destroy a person until they are convinced that they are so worthless that they have no choice but to repeat a heartless prayer and escape fiery torment. That, literally every church that I grew up in, we all, at the end of the message, it would always be like, if you walked out of here today and got hit by a bus, or if you, I don't know why they always bring up hitting by a bus, because it's like, how, did, how, much, how many people do they expect to get hit by a bus? you walk outside and get struck by lightning, okay, well, that's probably not going to happen. But if it does, do you think you'll go to heaven? Because you may wake up and start burning forever. And it's like, oh my goodness, like, I mean, yeah, I guess I'll pray it because I don't, I don't want to burn. Um, but yeah, that's what we teach. We've taught for centuries that God loves a few more than others and that those who he loves a little less, he created for the sole purpose of glorifying himself by destroying them. We completely skip Genesis 1 and 2 and immediately teach on the fall, but completely miss the fact that all mankind was created in the image of God. We think that Jesus wasn't able to save the cosmos in its entirety, but rather only some of it, thus making Adam's fall greater than God's redemption. We teach that one day God is coming back to save a few of his favorites, then leaving everyone else on here to ultimately be obliterated, and everything that's in the cosmos be obliterated. We see ourselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God. Here's one. We celebrate evil as though it is a sign that we are almost home. How many have heard that before? If we see earthquakes, then that's God's coming back. If we see a a moon that's red, then God's coming back. And it's like we celebrate all these things and we're excited about things that are going bad in hopes that God's going to come back and swipe us up when that's not at all what Scripture says, but we'll get to that in a second. We preach, earth is not my home, I'm just passing through. I have heard that quote, there was a church that I grew up in that shall remain nameless, That literally every Sunday, that phrase was the center of what they were saying. Earth is not my home, I'm just passing through. And we always sing songs like, uh, I'll fly away, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away when I die, hallelujah, by and by. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like, man, we are celebrating death. We're celebrating the fact that the earth is corrupt. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is not, why are we even here if this world is just corrupt and going to be destroyed? So what is the real judgment? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be hanging out on John three sixteen through 21. I'm reading from the NIV. For those who are reading The Passion may not be able to follow along because it's very different. These first two, we, we probably can quote by heart. But I think that a lot of times these first two verses are the only thing that's read. And it's like we completely miss the part that comes after. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the One of God's One and Only Son. This is the verdict or judgment of what the previous verse where it says it talks about those who have not believed are condemned already. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Boy, is that different! Light has come into the world. This is the judgment. Light has come. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their de- deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, the word that's used here for, for verdict or or uh, Judgment is crisis. Can anyone roll your R? Say crisis. Look at the person next to you. And go crisis. It's fun to say <laughs> crisis. It's where we get the word crisis from. It's it's literally spelled the exact same way except with a K. And that word simply means a decision or a sentencing. So it's the same thing as like if we go to court and someone has been tried guilty, this is the decision that has been made about what you're going to get as a result of what you've done. And what it's saying here is that that the result of everyone either accepting God or not accepting God is light has come, which is unbelievable because it's not like any judge that we see today. It's like, okay, you're going to go away and get locked up forever or sentenced to death or whatever, and then you're going to be okay. And God's like, no, light has come for all. Ever since the fall of mankind, mankind has been trying to hide itself from the light in fear of our evil deeds being exposed. We put on masks. We hide behind social media posts. We'll post Bible scriptures and be like, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And inside, we are totally dying. And we hide behind it because we're in fear of the light. Here's one, this is convicting. We hide in other people's shame. Tell me that this doesn't sound like the West. We hope that someone else has more evil and darkness in them so that we don't have to own up to the darkness we attempt to keep from the light ourselves. That's literally what we are today. Is how, Who can we find that's worse so that we look better? and we hide behind someone else's darkness because theirs is a little bit worse when we ourselves are also experiencing darkness that the light is trying to expunge. When light himself shows up on the scene, there was and is no more hiding. Light is going to pierce through the darkness whether we like it or not. Sorry. We need to get back to the garden where we are naked and unashamed in the middle of the light. As Josh was mentioning earlier, do you remember the time where you were naked and ashamed, the time where you encountered God and nothing else mattered, where all you cared about was his face and his presence and nothing else mattered? It's almost like a child, because whenever we first encountered God, we were childlike. We were in childlike wonder, God, you've done so much great in me, or God, I've seen your face, that's awesome. I care about nothing else. I don't care about what I've done. All I know is I'm here with you, and yet that has faded away. Children aren't afraid to be childlike. Even if they get in trouble, they always come back to what they know about who they are. Think about Veda, for example. If Veda does something that she's not supposed to do, yes, she might get in trouble, but she's still going to go back to being a child because she's childlike. And that should be our heart is that whenever we fall into something that may be considered darkness, our response shouldn't be, let me just go hide for a bit. It's let me go back to what I know about who I am, which is a child in the eyes of God. So today, I want us to identify this light and how we can receive and shine more of this light. Light has come. That's literally going to be the center of our message is light has come. Some embrace and joyfully walk in the light, knowing that in the light, they may have their good deeds exposed to God and others. These are the ones who, whether in secret or in public, mostly in secret, live their lives in such a way that God receives glory through their works that flow out of the overflow of their changed hearts. However, most in our culture and around the world, honestly, try to hide knowing good and well that the things that were permissible in darkness are no longer permissible in the light. This is a call back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? Verse eight in chapter three, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God walk as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, in Hebrew, the word is ayika, which means where are you? Actually, you know what it sounds like? It's like Hebrew, ayika. Someone say it, ayika. Put a little phlegm in it, ayika. <laughs> means where are you? And the thing we we misread this verse all the time, and we skip over it, thinking that God's like, hmm, "Hey, Adam, Eve, um, where are you?" And that's not what it's saying. There's two differences in the in the way that you say, "Where are you?" There's one. Let's say I have this marker, and I place it somewhere, and I have no idea where I placed it, and I'm looking for it because I genuinely lost it, and I'd be like, "Where is the marker?" But if I place the marker here and I know I placed the marker here and I walk away and come back and the marker is missing, I'm saying, where is my marker? This is where I had it and it's, no, it's not where I placed it. And that's what it's meaning here is God is responding to Adam and Eve saying, not where are you as in I have no idea where I put you. It's I know where you're supposed to be and you're not there. You're supposed to be walking with me in the cool of the day as a child and yet you aren't there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have found him. He'd been, where are you? And then he specifically points out to Adam, and Adam called, and that's when everything goes downhill. But God is saying, where are you? And I feel like that's what God is saying to our culture today is, where are you? My image bearers were put here, and they're not where they're supposed to be. This is not who they are. I know where they are. Where are you? Regardless, the light has come. People either come to the light or we bring the light to the people. A lot of times we read that we could read that verse in in, chat, in, uh, in John in the verse 20 where it says that people won't come to the light in fear of being exposed to the light. It doesn't say that we don't bring the light to them. It's saying that they don't willingfully come to the light themselves because Jesus said on his Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, the best way I can think to describe how we are is we are mirrors. We ourselves don't project any light by ourselves, but we are positioned in such a way where God shines on us and we reflect God shining on us into others. That's what we are mirrors. It's not a light that we conjured up ourselves; rather, we are receiving while simultaneously reflecting light into the world. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. I want to I want to go on a little rabbit trail for a second. This is why the whiteboard is here, because I think that this is where a lot of people I feel like get get. This is why people can't accept the fact that God's light has come for everyone. It's because we look at God incorrectly. So there's three different ways that we view God in light of us. If anyone can't see it, please let me know. I'll move out of the way, I promise. So one, we have what is called theism. And this is the belief that God is here and we are here. That God and the universe are totally separated. And that the way that we communicate with God is by him talking to us and we talking to him, but we are not in God and God is not in us. That is called theism. This is the definition of Western theology, is God is here, we are here, we're separated, we we have nothing to do with God, okay? Let me erase it because I don't want to start bending over towards the bottom. All right, that's theism. Then we have the complete opposite side where we have one big circle where God equals the universe. This is known as pantheism. This means that everything in the universe is God manifest. So like this table's God, this paper's God, this eraser's God, your God, I'm God. That's pantheism, which as we know, that's not correct. But then... You have, this is what's going to make everyone mad, because I've seen movies created to talk against this. We have God, and we have us. This is called panantheism. What this means is that God is in us, and we are in God. That God had created space in himself for us that we weren't outside of who God is. God didn't speak out and put something where something where he wasn't currently at. He created, Josh mentioned this on Tuesday, he created space in and of himself where we ourselves reside. So this changes everything. Because if we look at God as being separated from us, then that thing, every time that we come to God, we're talking to someone who's a billion miles away or probably farther or completely outside of the universe in hopes that he actually hears us. But if God is in us and us in God, we can talk to God where we are presently, and he is there. Changes everything. If you can get away from this and understand that we are in God, it will change everything. Because then you will start to see God everywhere. Instead of looking at our world as a place to be destroyed, and that we're suddenly going to be up here with God and and the the universe is going to be gone, when you see us in God, you start to see God everywhere. Everything becomes... I, this is cliche, but everything becomes spiritual. You start to see and hear God in everything, whether it claims to follow God or not. You see him everywhere. Changes everything. Okay, back on topic. It's, it, I, I promise this is going to be central, center to what we're talking about, though. So, what does light tangibly look like in today's cosmos? What does it look like to see God everywhere? We see the light when we see the image bearers reflecting God's light period. This is not something that, is only, that only Christians carry. As human beings, we all carry the image of an all-sufficient, all-loving Yahweh. The problem is, is in our Western world, we have limited the light to only have the ability to reflect off of believers and not believing that God can and does reflect off of people that we would never dream he would have reflected off of. Everywhere we see attributes of God shown in others, we know that the Lord is shining his light through them, whether they or we realize it or not. How does this change how we talk to people? When we see people marching at, let's say it was the the gay pride parade, we go, that's the best example I can think of because most Christians go there and, and hold up signs against them. When we see that happening, we have a decision to make. We either condemn their sin and say, Well, they're all going to hell, turn or burn, uh, God hates homos. You 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 ever seen those videos of the guys holding that sign up? Or we could go there. I saw one video. I I wish I knew who did it because I would share it with you guys. But there was a guy who went there who's also a believer and had a shirt on that said free hugs. That's all it said. And he just went around hugging everyone. And I feel like that strategy of going to people who are clearly living in a lifestyle they're not supposed to, but saying, here's the light of God. I'm bringing the light to you. I'm bringing love to you, whether you like it or not. That is what we are called to do. That is the gospel. So what separates us as a believer? As a believer, we... Uh, you not only trust in the source of light itself, but you essentially become a mirror that is consistently calibrated and rotated daily so that a little more of his light can shine and we, and he can be made known in our world. So whenever, basically what separates us is whenever we go to God, let's just use this as, as, as an example, as a mirror, and God's light is shining, let's just say it's that light. We would calibrate our mirror a little bit more until it begins to shine more and we receive more. And then the next day, we calibrate a little bit more. And that's what our daily walk with God looks like, is every single day we are calibrating our mirrors a little bit more so that we receive more light and reflect more light. That is the definition of being a Christian. That doesn't mean, though, that other people who aren't Christians can't reflect light. I want to make that clear. Everyone is mirrors, but as Christians, we are... Signing up to calibrate our mirror to receive and reflect more of His light. We cannot shine a light conjured up ourselves. Rather, we reflect light shining in and through us, and that light is Yahweh. So, what is the real good news? The light has come, and that light is love. Period. I keep looking over here, I'm sorry. Like I, you two are like my, my go to. That light has come, and that light is love period. It's not turn or burn, it's light has come, and that light is love for everyone. If we aren't convincing people that darkness has and is being defeated, and, they, and that they have light in them, then we aren't preaching the good news the way that Jesus in the early church did. Lights shine most effectively out of a place of secret devotion. When we go to the secret place, we are calibrating and adjusting our mirrors to not only take in the most light, but to also shine the most light in others. The more we develop this in us, the more light reflects off of us. Look at David. David's brothers were eager to stand before Solomon, or not Solomon, I'm sorry, I wrote this wrong, Samuel, uh, to take a position of king. David, however, was so enriched with God in secret that he was satisfied in scooping sheep dung if it meant spending more time with the real king. Think about it. David wasn't even present. Yeah, they didn't want him, but David could have overheard them and ran in there. But David was worshiping in front of sheep, and he was so satisfied with who he was. if his brothers had took, have taken king, he probably still would have been satisfied, because he was so satisfied in who he was and where he was that nothing else mattered. David wrote Psalms like Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1715, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 374, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. David was so satisfied with where he was. The irony is that although David was satisfied where he was, God still elevated him to the place where he was meant to be, in a place of power where his light can shine for the world to see. David is arguably the most world-renowned character and king in the Bible, yet in God's eyes, he was simply a man after his own heart. Don't miss that. God was not satisfied with David because of the position that he held in this world as king. God loved David and was passionate about David, and God called in David a man after my own heart. From the beginning, before David was even chosen, Samuel got the command from God, I have placed a man there after my own heart, and that's who you are to bring in as king. I want to look at, a little bit in depth, at the woman at the well story. I feel like this is going to make the point even better so if you have your Bible, go to John 4. I'm going to be reading quite, 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 quite a bit. So if if you don't love the Bible, you're not going to love this. If you don't like it, then maybe, you know, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you today. No, I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. I'm not going to tell you how many verses I'm reading because then you'll go. "Ah." All right. Listen to this. Listen how Jesus, is. what Jesus does here is completely opposite of what we're used to, and this is what the gospel is supposed to look like. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Successful ministry. Although, in fact, he was, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee what? If you had gained fame amongst the Pharisees, and if you had gained fame amongst the people of the town, wouldn't you stay there and build a church? Wouldn't you stay there and build a ministry? Isn't that success? Jesus left. He's like, nah, I'm good. So convicting to me, especially. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, "...near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his own son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon." Which I don't know if that's entirely correct, because the time was different for them and how they determined time. But I digress. "...when a Sumerian woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone to a town to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Listen to Jesus' response. Oh, I love this. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you ask for a drink, that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. I feel like Jesus is presenting that same exact response to the church today as we Jesus is coming to us, asking us for water. I, listen, this is so, so, so prophetic, okay? If you're just looking at this literally, then you've missed it. He's going to the woman, asking her for water. I look at that as Jesus is coming to her saying, hey, like, I want to drink of you. And then she's like, well, well you, can't, you can't do that. And Jesus is like, if only you knew who asked you for a drink, then you yourself would receive a drink and you would never thirst again. I feel like that's what he's telling the church today. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'you have nothing to draw water, and the well is deep. "'Where can you get this living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob, "'who gave us the well and drank from it himself, "'as did also his son and his livestock?' "'Jesus answered, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks of the water I give them "'will never thirst. "'Indeed, the water I give them "'will become in them a spring of water,' Well, uh, welling up to eternal life that's what Jesus is offering us is not a well that is temporary. I feel like if I'm looking at this myself, I'm looking at the well of, that doesn't last as religion. As we go to God and we expect to get things from God or expect to God to operate a certain way, and God's like, If you will drink of me, you will have eternal life and you will never thirst again. Uh, The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty "'and have to keep coming up here to draw water.'" He told her, this is so random, but it's so amazing. "'Go call your husband and come back.'" What? It's gonna get good, I'm telling you. I love this so much. "'I have no husband,' she replied. "'Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say you have no husband. "'The fact is, is you've had five husbands.'" And the man you are now—that you now—whoa, I'm sorry. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. If you're looking at this through natural eyes, you're going to be like, "Man, Jesus was kind of a jerk." It's not what he's trying to say. I want to read something before I keep going on. I found this online, and I think it is the coolest thing ever. Samaria was once part of the northern kingdom of Israel, which you know what? I'm going to sit back down. Sorry. I think think what Josh does rubs off on me a little bit. (laughs) Samaria was once part of the northern kingdom of Israel, which had broken off from the Davidic kingdom. The kingdom of Assyria brought pagans into Samaria to settle there. Interestingly enough, 1 Kings 17 verses 30 and 31 tells us that there were five groups that settled there, each worshiping their own pagan gods. The Babylonians worshiped Marduk. The men of Cuth worshiped Nergal, The men of Ava worshipped Nibhaz and Tartak. These are really hard names to pronounce. The men of Sephirothim worshipped their city gods, and King Hadad worshipped Anath. Even though the Israelites were joined in covenant to the one true God, they intermarried with these foreigners and adopted their worship and practices. This is why the Jews wouldn't have anything in common with the Samaritans because their assimilation with these pagans had defiled them. Listen to this. Samaria, like the woman at the well, had five husbands and was estranged from her true husband. Tell me this story is literal. Talking to the woman at the well and saying, you have had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. What is Jesus saying here? You are with someone who is not your true husband. I lost my spot. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yes, sir. The woman said, "I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem." Woman, Jesus replied, "Believe me, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know; we worship what we do know. For salvation is for the is from the Jews." Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I just imagine the woman's response, and like, oh, yeah, that'll be the day when the Messiah comes, and Jesus is like, I'm standing right in front of you. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, "What do you want?" or "Why are you talking with her?" Then, leaving his her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, "Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah?" They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have found food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, "Come, uh, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you, say, don't you have a saying, it is four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Other... Ooh, that's good. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Almost done. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. This woman, fun fact, is the first character in the Bible that won an entire city for Christ. A woman, those who don't want to believe in women preachers, a woman was the first evangelist. A woman who had five husbands, the one she was living with currently was not her husband, won a city for Christ. Thank you. Amen. Women. (laughs) Women power. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him and he stayed two days. And because his words, many more became believers. Listen to this next part. This This is the most important part of the whole thing. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. For her, she could have been, she could have built a church, she could have built a ministry, but she her light shined even to the point where the people no longer lifted up her words but encountered Jesus and that satisfied them. That is ministry. It's not about building a church. It's not about building a giant, mega, ultra huge ministry. It's about letting our light shine in such a way where they encounter God, not you. God is in you, but you're reflecting God, but they'll come to the point where they are encountering Christ and that is what satisfied them. And they may never remember who you are. I heard a saying one time is, You're born, you preach the gospel, you die, and you're forgotten. That's what it's about. Because if Christ is really the center of everything, then your gospel is going to bring people to Christ, not you. And that when you go away, you're satisfied because you know that you have done the work of the Father, but they are satisfied because they've encountered Jesus. That is ministry, that's the gospel. Being developed in the secret place means being so satisfied with God that, no long, that you no longer care about the platform. In fact, most who get the fullness of the secret place beg God to never let them leave. When you taste and see the fullness of Yahweh in secret, you quite literally no longer care about what he can give you. Rather, you care about just seeing his face a little longer. I can attest for this myself. There have been times where I've been in secret with God that I'm like, God, like if I can just stay here and nobody else has to come in contact with me, like if I can just sit here forever, I'm okay. Have you ever had moments like that where you're sitting with God? It's like, man, like, let's just keep let's just take me now, Lord, and let's just experience this forever. But when you become so enriched in secret, it no longer becomes, God, here's what I need you to do for me. It's God, I have everything I need in you. Do you see the shift? It's not about what God can give you, it's about who you are in him and him in you. It's about this, us being in God, him being in us, being satisfied with him and him alone. The last time I spoke, I talked about being satisfied in him. If we are satisfied in him, we need nothing else. But if we aren't satisfied, that's when we go to God saying, I need this, I need this, build this for me, uh, I, I'd really like to you know, find a woman, I'm single, um, I'd like to find this, this, and this. And God's like, be satisfied in me, and I will fill all of those spaces. It was like, a, was it who was it that said it on Tuesday, about whenever you have a spot that you try to fill, I think it was Lauren, when you have a spot that you would normally fill with sin, you have God fill that space instead and you're satisfied. That was you that said that, right, on Tuesday? Okay. It's so good though. It's like we, we constantly try to find things that God can give us. It doesn't have to necessarily be sin. I think it's just as sinful when you go to God and ask God to give you something that normally overflows out of a place of intimacy. You don't know until you have tasted and seen. This could, I could preach on being satisfied in God till I'm blue in the face, but until you have yourself tasted and seen, then you will just think that this is okay, that this is cool, you know, I'll try that out sometime. But once you actually get into the secret place, I promise you, you will be satisfied and you'll never want to leave. It's so important. It's not something we just talk about. It's something that we live here. People today want to birth something without engaging in the intimacy required to conceive, We ask God to birth something out of us, but if you're not engaging in intimacy, then you're spiritually flat, and you're wondering, why am I not pregnant with what God's wanting to do in me? And yet you completely avoided the intimacy required to get to a place where you're birthing something. It's the equivalent of someone going up and being like, man, I'd love to have a kid. Like, God, please give me a kid. And God's like, what? That's not all, I mean, that's not all it takes. There's kids in the room, I won't go specific. But it requires a lot more than just saying, God, put one in me. But give me a baby. Let me be like Mary. Doesn't work that way. Without intimacy, you're birthing nothing. All right, Josh, if you actually want to come up and and play, I have a, a few more things. But exactly. Um, yeah, normally it's it's the other way around. Um, I want to I want to share a story. I I saw this. I, if you're a part of the group chat, I shared it on our uh, on our um, group chat. It was a story from Damon Thompson Church. I want to share this to you because I believe that this is where we're going and this is a perfect picture of it. So Damon had, had gotten like a, a letter from someone in his church and this is the story. I, I'm not, I didn't get a chance to write it all down because he didn't provide the whole thing. But basically, there was a man that was praying and God had told him to go to Asheville and do absolutely nothing. The man's wife decided to stay at home and pray for him. The man got to Asheville and walked on the streets for hours praying to God. Suddenly he saw a woman who was slumped over, hissing and screaming at people that passed by. Clearly someone who was possessed. He saw her to the point, or he saw her point into darkness and give a blood-curdling scream. The man heard from God that this was it. So he decided to go across the street and position himself ahead of her on a sidewalk. She walks up to him, and without anything happening, the man doesn't say anything. She suddenly stands up straight and says, "Oh, hi." She then places his hand on her cheek, thanks him, and walks away completely in her right mind. The man noticed that his phone had rang, and he he checked his phone and noticed that he missed a text from his wife, who was at home praying, saying, "Is the girl there yet?" The man wondered how that happened and felt almost like he was a failure for not having said anything to the girl, not even sharing the gospel with her. Then suddenly he felt as God was talking to him, I told you to do nothing. And now because you listened, that girl has been set free. Go home for you have done the will of the father. This is where we're going. We are going to be able to walk to walk up to people who are demon-possessed and just by staring at them through our eyes of love into their face of darkness, they will encounter freedom. We are going to be able to walk through hospitals and entire floors, be cleared because our light canceled sickness. We are going to be able to walk into parts of the world where evil resided heavily. And that same place, because of God's light through us, will become a sanctuary of and for Yahweh. But this stuff will not happen if we spend our time and efforts chasing things, like chasing things from God and not chasing God himself. These are all byproducts of being so obsessed with the mountain of devotion that we shine without exerting even 1% of our energy. This is what's gonna change our city is we become so obsessed with God and understand that he's so obsessed with us that the only thing we do, as Josh mentioned before at the end of worship, is that the only thing we do is become so obsessed about one thing and that's being with God. And the result of us being so attached to God Is the world being changed? We don't have to say a word. God's light will shine through us. The problem is, is we don't trust in that. We think that that's not enough. But God's saying, if you become satisfied in me, and I in you, I will change the world through you. So, in closing, if if we want to have the rest of the worship team come too as well, I forgot that we're doing another song. Actually, here is the judgment. Light has come. In the beginning, God spoke into darkness and said, Let there be light, and there was light. Darkness attempted to take back over the world of light, and just when darkness thought it had the upper hand, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The same word that formed light in the beginning was spoken into flesh in the form of a man named Jesus. Light surrendered his shine to carry the darkness of the world. That darkness led him to his death. However, three days later, a spark was lit and the light was restored to a man who had given it up. Darkness has been defeated and light has come. So come, receive this light. Adjust your mirrors and calibrate its frame. Light. Let the light you received reflect into the lives of the broken and watch a city that was once identified as a raven identify with her true self, the city of the dove. We're about to go into another song. Um, It's called Communion. And there's one specific part of the song that I feel like we sing it and we sing it and we sing it, but we never actually truly let it become part of our being. This is where I'm meant to be. Me and you and you and me. This is where I'm meant to be. Me and you and you and me. It's not, this is where I'm meant to be, a giant ministry and and then God, if, if time permits, It's this is where I'm meant to be, me and you, you and me, period. I don't have to prove a thing you've already approved of me. If we can become so convinced that God is obsessed with us, then we will go in secret, obsessed with him, and change the world in secret. That's so backwards, Matt. Don't we have to put out advertisements and do all these great things? No, become so obsessed in secret and the world will change through you in secret. Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Your works that you do for God are going to be in secret if you are truly with him in secret. Let me tell you what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks like you getting hit by a semi, your car getting hit by a semi, your car is completely totaled, and you go into the person driving the semi saying, let me pay for your truck let he, he, he who has an ear hear. It's not saying, man, you hit my car, you owe me this money. Like the kingdom looks completely different. But the fact is, is we've become so obsessed with what we can get that we forget that in secret, we see a God who actually gives himself and that encourages us to give ourselves. But if we're not encountering God in secret, we're not giving anything. Thus the world still being where it's at. We see places, like Josh mentioned earlier, we see places around the world and we, it's really easy for us to sit back and do nothing But if you're truly encountering God in secret, you're gonna see these places and be like, what can I do? The world is going to change through us, but the reality is, is if we aren't encountering him in devotion, it'll never happen. The reason why our world is where it's at is we do not have people who are devoted in secret. We have people who are trying to build a platform and use that platform to change the world, when in reality, the way the, the, the world has changed is seeing the one who you've encountered in secret. So if everyone would bow your heads for a second. If you're in here today and you say, you know what, Matt, I've never truly given myself to God. I'm not talking about repeating a prayer. I'm not talking about this idea of if I just say these magic words that I'm saved, I'm saying you have not said, I will follow Jesus wherever he leads me, even if it's a place I'm uncomfortable. If that's you, would you please slip your hand up between me, you, and God? Awesome. Awesome. If you're in here today and you say, you know what, Matt, I've, I have really slacked in the secret place. I've allowed my life to get busy. I've allowed work to get crazy. And I've allowed myself to slack in an area that I should be spending all of my time in. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? Whew, thank you. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna just go into worship. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for showing this word to me. Thank you, Lord, for finding me that when I thought I lost me, you knew exactly where I left me and you reintroduced me, reintroduced me. Not for the first time, but you reintroduced me to something that was ancient. Not anything new, but something that always was and always will be. And because I've encountered you, I've become so satisfied with you that I could go and sit under a rock for the rest of my days if I just have you and that be enough. I thank you, Lord, for giving me that flame. And I ask, Lord, if there's anybody here who does not have that flame, that you would show up in a way for them that is inescapable, that your light will shine into their darkness and every crevice and corner that is in their heart, that you would fill every space that's not filled with you and that you would rip out anything that doesn't belong, even if it's painful, even if they think it's of you, if it doesn't belong to you and if it's not what you want in them, rip it out prune our hearts. I pray, Lord, that as we worship, that you encounter us with a fresh fire, a fresh fire, Jesus, that you would encounter us in a way that we have not been encountered before, that you would be present more now than you ever have been. Calibrate our mirrors today, Lord, where we can receive more of your light and thus shine it into the rest of the world. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.